Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on February 21st, 2016, on the basis of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Our God is in the business of taking something and calling it the opposite of what it appears to be. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's what this Lenten series entitled Exchange is all about, that God takes something and he calls it the exact opposite. And in most cases, that's something that we're perfectly fine with. For example, last week we saw God look at his son, his only son, his perfect son, and say, you will be a substitute. You will be a sacrifice. I am going to send you to death so that I can spare them from death. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good deal. And yet in plenty of other cases, this thing that God does is a little bit tougher for us to swallow. And, and today's a prime example of that. In these verses that we're going to be looking at from Romans chapter 5, Paul addresses the topic of suffering. Specifically, suffering that is directly connected to our Christian faith. You heard Jesus talk about the very same thing in today's gospel, and he referred to it as carrying a cross. So God looks at that suffering. And do you know what he says about it? He says, when you suffer, you will rejoice. When you suffer, you will find glory. When you suffer, you will boast. I'm not so sure about that deal. You know what it sounds like? I, I sort of picture myself sitting down at this five-star steakhouse with this big, juicy ribeye steak on my plate, piled high with mushrooms, cooked medium-rare, closer to rare than it is to medium. And just as I'm about ready to dig into that big, juicy steak, the waiter comes along, takes away my ribeye, and gives me a McRib. And then says to me, don't worry, this is just as good. Don't worry, you'll enjoy this just as much. That's kind of, that's kind of what this seems like, that, that God looks at our suffering and says you should rejoice. That God looks at the painful crosses that we carry and he says, well, well you should boast. Really, God, that's, that's what you want me to do? Here's what Paul says in these verses. He, he starts out by talking about all of the wonderful blessings that we would receive as people who put our faith in Jesus. He starts out by saying, through what Jesus did for you with his death on the cross, here are three things that come to you as a result. First of all, you have peace with God. In other words, you and I are not left wondering. You and I are not left worrying. Is God angry with me or is God happy with me? Was that good that I did good enough? Was that bad that I did too much? No, God says that our relationship with God is settled. We have peace with God. Secondly, Paul says that we have access to God. In other words, our relationship with God is not like an episode of The Bachelor. Don't worry, I won't ask who watches that show. But what Paul is saying is that in our relationship with God, we don't have to be left wondering, well, am I in or am I out? Is he going to keep me around for another week or is he going to show me the door? No, through faith in Jesus, it's almost as if we've been given a password that opens up this door right into the throne room of God. And once we are in that room, God says that's where we will stay. We don't have to worry about 
whether or not we're going to get kicked out from one week to the next based on God's whims or based on our performance. Finally, Paul says that we have hope in the glory of God. God has big plans for you. That place that the Bible calls heaven, that that place that's so good that it's good enough for God, God wants you to be there with him too. And he promises to take you there. You can bank on that. Peace with God, access to God, hope in the glory of God. It's no wonder that, that after talking about those blessings in the opening part of these verses, Paul says, as a result, we rejoice. And not only that, that's what comes next. Paul says, not only that. What, what do you expect to hear when Paul says, not only that? So your daughter comes home from school and says, guess what, mom and dad? I got the lead part in the play. And not only that, what do you expect? News that's just as good? Maybe news that's even better? And yet here's where Paul drops this difficult news. He says, yes, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. How in the world can Paul look at the painful things that we go through, the struggles that we endure, and say, when these things happen to you, you will rejoice, you will boast. Well, let's first talk a minute about what Paul is not saying here. He's not telling you to rejoice because of your sufferings. In other words, he's not saying that sufferings are a good thing or that sufferings are things that you should seek out and try and find or that the more you suffer, the better of a Christian you are. No, he's not saying rejoice because of your suffering. He's also not saying rejoice in spite of your suffering. God never tells you to just pretend that the difficult things in your life don't exist. He never asks you to pretend that the pain doesn't hurt. He doesn't ask you to walk around with this phony smile pasted on your face 24-7. No, Paul doesn't say rejoice because of your sufferings. He doesn't say rejoice in spite of your sufferings. He says rejoice in your sufferings. In other words, the sufferings are what they are. And they will cause you pain. They will hurt. They will make you sad. They will make you frustrated. And yet, even as that is going on, you can rejoice because of what God will use those sufferings to do. Specifically, here's what Paul says. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. First point Paul's trying to make is that that when we suffer, it reveals the character of our Christian faith. Imagine for a moment that you had two soldiers in the army standing before you and and you had to evaluate them based on their bravery, their valor, their loyalty, their skill, which of the two is superior. And on the one hand, this soldier had been deployed overseas on multiple occasions. He had on many different occasions, risked his life for the sake of his fellow soldiers. He had gotten wounded on the field of battle and he had received many medals and other forms of recognition. On the other hand, this soldier had completed 20 years of very faithful military service, 
all during peacetime. Now, is it possible that this soldier is just as brave, just as courageous, just as strong, just as skilled? Well, of course it is. It's just that with the first soldier, you know. Right? What he has gone through has revealed the character of who he really is. And Paul is saying that your suffering reveals the character of your faith. Friends, do you know who's going to notice that the most? It's the people who don't share that same Christian faith. Imagine for a moment if when you became a Christian, suddenly everything started going perfectly well for you. When other people looked at that, do you know what they would think? They would think, well, look look at everything that I'm struggling with in my life. Look at all of the things that are wrong with me. If if being a Christian means that everything has to be picture perfect, well, then I I guess that could never be me. Instead, when non-Christians see Christians suffer, do you know what they think? They think, wow, she goes through exactly the same struggles that I do. Only she always seems to handle them a little bit better than I do. I need to find out why. Paul says that suffering reveals the character of our faith. Secondly, Paul says that That suffering actually increases and leads to greater hope. That hope of eternal life, that hope of being in heaven with Jesus forever, the more we suffer, the more that hope goes up. Do you know the rules of the poker game five-card draw? If not, that's okay. I had to to look it up myself just to make sure. But if you've ever played five-card draw, you know how it goes. Everyone has dealt five cards... And on the basis of those five cards, there's one round of betting that goes around the table. Everyone gets to place their initial bet. Then once that initial round of betting is done, each player has the opportunity to replace one or more of their cards from zero all the way up to five with cards that would be taken randomly right from the top of the remaining deck. So you can imagine if you're playing that game, you you get dealt your five cards, you look down and you see four aces you're obviously going to stay pat, right? You're you're good with playing that hand. But the worse your hand gets, the more you start looking to the cards at the top of the deck, the more those other cards seem appealing. That's what Paul says our, our suffering does to us. It increases our hope. Again, what if you had the perfect life? If you had the perfect house, the perfect spouse, the perfect kids, the perfect car, And then some Christian or some preacher came up to you and said, you know, have you ever thought about going to heaven someday? What would you say? Who needs heaven? I've got heaven right here. Instead, as we look at the hand that we've been dealt, so to speak, as much as we surely recognize that there are so many blessings that God pours out in our lives, more blessings than we could ever deserve, it's our suffering that causes us to look at that hand and say, you know, as good as it is, this isn't the hand that I want to hold forever. There's something even more that I want. It's our suffering that makes us willing to be able to turn that hand in and and confidently expect what God is going to give give to us in its place. So suffering reveals the character of our faith and suffering increases our hope of eternal life. And that's why Paul says, when you suffer, as difficult, as painful as it is, 
you can rejoice. But you know that poses a problem. And if you're a card player, you maybe already know what it is. You see, in a game of five-card draw, if you are dealt a complete dud of a hand, you don't ask for five more cards simply so that you can stay in the game. No, what do you do? You fold. You walk away. You get out of that hand as quickly as you possibly can so that you, you have money left to play another one. Well, really what Paul is saying here is that not only does he want us to be ready to put all of our hope, not in the hand that we've been dealt, but in the one that's to come, Paul is telling us to go all in on that hand, to, to put all of our chips on the expectation that we have that God is going to give us eternal life. And that's an awful way to play a game of cards. I mean, you can cross your fingers and you can wish and you can pray that the five cards that roll off the top of that deck are going to be the winning hand, but the overwhelming odds are that you are going to be wrong. So what if God's wrong? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. What if this hope that we put in eternal life lets us down? I think that's one of the reasons why so often we, we try and walk away. We try and escape the life that includes suffering that, that God gives to us. Sometimes we try and escape by, by getting really, really angry with God. We sort of shake our fist at him and, and say to him what any parent of a five-year-old has heard over and over again too many times to count. We say, God, that's not fair. God, I deserve better. God, stop treating me this way. And right alongside of that, we try and escape our suffering by avoiding it at all costs, by, by taking matters into our own hands. If that suffering entails ridicule or scrutiny from the world around us as a result of our faith, well, then maybe we just, we just kind of keep quiet about it. If that suffering involves the painful struggle against a particular sin, then maybe we just follow the advice of the world. And we, we give in to that sin and we actually find fulfillment and self-expression in that sin. If that suffering involves making sacrifices of our time and our, our, our money for the things that God considers to be the very most important things, well, then maybe we just spend our time and spend our money the way that we want and God can have whatever's left. See, I think all of that stems from the fact that it's difficult to do what God is asking us to do. It's difficult to, to stop putting any hope in the hand that we've been dealt, in the life that we see in front of us right now, and put all of our chips on the life that is to come. Because what if that hope lets us down? Well, thankfully, God has already provided us with proof that it won't. You see, this idea, this pattern that Paul talks about in these verses where God uses things that appear to be so bad and, and uses them to accomplish great good. God is not doing that for the first time with us. It's a pattern that God put in place a long time ago in the life of our Savior Jesus. See, God sent Jesus into this world to win a prize for him. And friends, you and I were that prize people that in these verses Paul describes as, as powerless, as ungodly, as sinful, as God's enemies, 
by nature, Jesus looks at us, God looks at us and says, that's the prize that I want more than anything. And in order to win that prize, Jesus has to leave behind the glory and the majesty of heaven and replace it with the shame and the agony of a cross. That's how he's going to win us for God. And yet Jesus calls that his greatest joy, being able to do that for us. And friends, do you know what God has accomplished through that suffering? All of the things that Paul mentioned in the opening parts of these verses, peace with God, access to God, hope in the glory of God. So friends, we don't simply have to blindly trust that God can do what he's promising to do. God's already proven his ability to do it. In fact, if you're ever tempted to doubt what God is saying in these verses, just picture picture one of those crosses. You know, we found out this week that the large metal cross that we had ordered a while back for the front of our worship space here at Good News is done. And this week we're going to hang it up here at the front of our church. It's actually in my office if anyone wants to look at it following the service. And I would be willing to guess that once it's hanging up there on the wall, at least one person is going to look at it and think to themselves, my, that is beautiful. And of course, there's good reason to say that. But do you understand how strange that really is? You see, not only were crosses instruments of of torture and execution, not only did they inflict unspeakable pain and agony on their victims, they were also instruments of public shaming. People were executed on crosses right out in the open where everyone could see and in fact lifted up from the earth so that more people could see. It was not only the most painful but also the most humiliating way a person could die. So if you had said to Jesus' disciple Peter or his mother Mary or any other first century Jew that at some point in time the single most significant symbol the most readily identifiable mark of the Christian faith would one day be that cross do you know how they would look at you they would think that you're crazy and yet that's exactly what's happened right we call those crosses beautiful we hang them in our churches we wear them around our necks because that cross is a symbol It's a symbol of everything that we have in Jesus. Peace with God, access to God, hope in the glory of God. And it's also a symbol. It's also proof that God will do for us what he promises to do here. That he will take the very worst things in our lives and use them for the very best. See, God doesn't just take something and call it the opposite of what it appears to be. God takes that thing and he shows it. He demonstrates it to be. He proves it to be the opposite of what it seems. And for that, friends, even when we suffer, we will rejoice. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.